Well, I was looking back at the calendar, or at least what's posted online, um, for sermons in Matthew, and we started Matthew just about a year ago. Um, we got like one week, one week uh, until we, I think it was May 9th last year, or something like that. But in any case, just kind of interesting. Uh, it's been great to go through Matthew with you all. Uh, let's remember where we're at. Where we're at, we're in this turning point in narrative in chapters 11 and 12. Um, so remember, Jesus got through his last discourse, his last main area of teaching in chapter 10. He, he sent out the 12 uh, to proclaim the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And uh, then right after that, in chapter 11, we had John from prison saying, are you really the one to come? And uh, Jesus says, yes, look at my works. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come, who was to come, who is to come, who is here, really. And then he, Jesus turns to the crowds, and remember what he says to the crowds. He gets them to think first about John and who he is. Uh, if you are willing to accept, if you're willing to receive, if you're willing to repent and entrust yourself to me as king, then you will see that John was that Elijah-like figure that was to come before the coming of the kingdom, before the day of the Lord. Uh, I will regather you, Israel. It'll be all the things that were promised about the kingdom in the Old Testament. It will come about. But then Jesus goes right on to say, this generation is silly and capricious. It's not holding to the truth. It's not receiving the message. And then he goes on to denounce, uh, to reject the cities uh, that he spent the most time, that he did the most miracles at, that he gave the most kingdom foretaste, those who had all the natural advantages. And he says, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, and what we saw last week, though, is it doesn't end there. Jesus calls. There's still the call to come, to come, come to me. We talked about last week that Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king. He is the one who is to rule over all the nations, all the world. He is the one to bring rest. And what we meant by that rest is the idea of Edenic rest, where man started in the garden before God, dwelling in God's presence, basking in his glory in perfect peace and harmony. And that's where it's going. And Jesus says, yeah, if you want that, then you got to come to me. You got to repent and entrust yourself to me. And he's not just addressing individuals. He's addressing the nation. He's addressing the nation of Israel. And he's saying, come, come Israel. You're, you're under this yoke. Uh, my yoke is good and light. You're under oppression. You're under oppression by Rome, but not only are you under oppression by Rome, you're under oppression by your own bad shepherds. You remember, you remember in chapter 10, the backdrop of Ezekiel 34, where uh, it says that uh, the shepherds are bad, right? These are bad shepherds. They're taking advantage of my sheep. And Jesus was implicitly referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. What you have to understand about the scribes and the Pharisees, and I bring this up because we're going to see them in our text this morning, is that they were sort of a grassroots movement. They didn't technically have any official position in the leadership of Israel, and yet they were known as interpreters of the law. Uh, They would look at the scriptures, they would interpret the scriptures, they would apply the scriptures, and so the people respected them. They respected what they said. But what will come, and you'll see that what we've already seen in Matthew, and you'll see it again today, is that uh, their interpretation of the law was skewed. And it became more about their own authority and leadership than it did about the law and the heart of the law. And so Jesus has critiqued them already. You're going to see him critique them again. But really, and you can see this in Matthew 23, where he calls the scribes and Pharisees their burden, their yoke, 
is heavy. Their yoke is heavy because uh, um, if Jesus is the true interpreter of the law, that's what we talked about, that idea of yoke, you're either serving under the yoke of Yahweh and his law, or you're serving under foreign oppression, foreign domination, you're serving under a heavy yoke. Well, part of that heavy yoke in Jesus' day was the scribes and Pharisees who were interpreting the law and putting uh, burdens on people that were wrong. And we'll see, like I said, we'll see that today. And so what we, why I had Jim read from verse 28 in chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 14, is that idea of rest, we see that carried through actually in this section today as it's all about the Sabbath. It's all about the Sabbath. How do we, really what's at stake as Jesus confronts the Pharisees here, and again, this is part of the plot. The plot is moving in Matthew to more and more opposition of Jesus, and what you're going to see today is a particular uh, decisive turn of of the Pharisees, and probably the scribes too, towards opposing Jesus. And what you're going to see is at stake is the issue of authority. Who has the authority to interpret the law? And if their authority is threatened, you see how the Pharisees and the scribes react. So that's kind of the question that's at issue. How do we interpret the law and who has the authority to interpret it? And you see that come to a head today. And so the main idea for our section in Matthew this morning, Matthew 12, 1 through 14, is this. Obey the Sabbath and God's law from the heart, following the Son of Man. Obey the Sabbath and God's law from the heart, following the Son of Man. That was there for Jesus' day, but it was also there for Matthew's day. Remember who's Matthew's writing to? He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's writing to a Jewish audience that's embraced the Messiah, that they've entrusted themselves to Jesus, and they're starting to separate from their uh, Jewish friends and neighbors, their relatives, those who are still under the yoke of the Pharisees. And so even what Matthew is doing by recording this incident for his audience is he's showing, here's how Jesus dealt with these bad shepherds and their misuse of the law. And Matthew's audience needed that because after the destruction of the temple, after that happened, the Pharisaical version of Judaism essentially became the Judaism And even to today, there are roots, not in every stream of Judaism, but um, at least in a couple, that Pharisaic interpretation of the law, that rabbinic interpretation. And so Matthew is helping his audience with that big idea. Obey the Sabbath and God's law from the heart, following the Son of Man. So let's see first, in verses 1 through 8, this main idea, that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath and law. The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath and law. Look at verse 1. At that time, okay, so we pause. This is giving us a temporal frame. Uh, We're thinking about when is this happening? Well, basically what the text is saying is it's happening about the same time that chapter 11 happened. All that stuff about who is Jesus, who's John the Baptist. Maybe not the same day, but at that same basic time, uh, this this is when this episode, these two episodes happen. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So the idea seems to be that this is something Jesus normally did. Um, It's kind of speaking of the event as a whole that Jesus would go through grain fields with his disciples on the Sabbath. 
But at least he's singling out a particular episode where the disciples are hungry. Uh, they're snacky. And so they start uh, picking these heads of grain. Uh, now, uh, this is probably wheat or barley, one of the two. Um, and I don't know if you've ever done this before. My, my great-grandparents uh, owned a wheat farm just south of Spokane, 45 minutes south on the Palouse there, Washington. And I would go down as a kid every, um, every summer and would harvest. And of course, uh, the harvesting part, the part of getting the heads out of the grain, you didn't have to rub your hands together. You have a combine for that, right? But sometimes you're out in the field and it's like, well, I kind of want a little snack. So you could dig your hand into the grain bin and pop those wheat kernels directly into your mouth and start chewing it. And it starts getting a little gummy, uh, but it does satisfy your hunger a little bit. So that's kind of what's going on there. They're rubbing their, they're grabbing the, the grain, they're rubbing their hands over it to get the kernels out and they're popping them into their mouths because they're hungry, they're snacky. Um, so that's what we see going on. But then it causes this conflict with the Pharisees, those experts and interpreters of the law. So we see in verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, this is kind of interesting because they're, they're kind of attacking the, the disciples but they, the Pharisees see the disciples as under the authority of Jesus. So really, it's a backhanded way of challenging him and saying, look, control your disciples. They're doing what's wrong. Uh, they're doing what's not lawful, what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, we need to do some work on this. So we're going to be doing a lot of Old Testament digging today. Um, let's start by figuring out what's the big deal about the Sabbath. What's the big deal about the Sabbath? Now, just to be very clear, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, meaning Saturday. So the Sabbath was yesterday, okay? Sabbath's not today, it was yesterday. Just because sometimes in our Christian culture, we talk about keeping the Sabbath on Sunday. Well, technically that's not true. It's actually on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. So we can say that. But more importantly, uh, what is the Sabbath all about? Why is it such a big deal? Well, turn over in your Bibles to Exodus, to Exodus, Exodus 31, and let me paint for you why the Sabbath is such a big deal. Now, in one level, we know the Sabbath kind of institution sort of kind of starts in creation, but that's not the force uh, what what Jesus and the Pharisees are talking about. The force of the Sabbath and how big of a deal it is really starts to come with the giving of the Israelite covenant at Mount Sinai, which is uh, in, uh, in Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, this is kind of the capstone of the initial giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so we read this in Exodus 31, verse 12. And Yahweh said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. That idea of sanctify is he took a people, he rescued a people out of Egypt, uh, in, uh, the common slaves, he brought them out of the realm of the common, out of idol worship, into the realm of the holy. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people for his use. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart in that sense. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. 
Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so what you see here, it's not just what happened at creation, it is that. It's the tying together of this particular people, this particular nation, and the nation with which God gave this law, the Torah, at Mount Sinai, and he said, you're my people, and I want to connect you with me as the creator God who gave the initial Sabbath, so you got to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath, to put it shortly, is the sign of the Israelite covenant. Every covenant has signs. The Noahic covenant has a rainbow. We still see that sign today because God is keeping covenant with humanity. Uh, We see the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. You're part of this particular people, Abraham's people. And then you have the covenant at Sinai, the Israelite covenant. The sign of that is the Sabbath. So if you don't keep the Sabbath, it's not just that you're working when you shouldn't. It's that you're saying, eh, the Sabbath's not that big of a deal. Uh, It's not a big deal to be part of God's people, so it doesn't matter. And God says, no, you're essentially rejecting the covenant, and it's worthy of death. That is why the Sabbath is such a big deal. You can see this later in Numbers, you don't have to go there, but Numbers 15, 32 through 36, it talks about a man. They found a man gathering wood, gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and they brought him before Moses and Aaron and the congregation for judgment, and God says, put him to death. Put him to death. Why? He was just picking up sticks. Well, it's because he's violating the covenant sign. He's essentially disregarding God's covenant. Um, So it's not just about the Sabbath. It's about the whole of the covenant. And so that's why the Sabbath is such a big deal. Now, what's surprising about that, you might think, given these sorts of commands and how drastic and what was at stake with this, that there would be more explicit commands in the Old Testament of, okay, this is permitted on the Sabbath, this is not permitted. All it says here is that you're not supposed to work. But if you start to think about it, it's like, what's work? What constitutes work? Is eating work? Right? You start thinking about it, and it's like, well, what's work and what's not? And actually, if you look in uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, you don't see very many explicit instructions about here's work and here's not. It just says that if you work, you're going to die. So now the Pharisees come along and other interpreters of the law, and they're like, hmm, uh, we better figure this out because there's a lot at stake here. So why don't we do this? Why don't we kind of put our heads together and think through what's work and what's not? Uh, There's a second century AD document called the Mishnah, that actually seems to go back to the Pharisees, and you get this list, and it's a lot. It's very, very detailed. Uh, This is work, but this isn't work. This is work, but this isn't work. And that's the kind of thing that they're thinking about when they're talking to Jesus in Matthew 12. Uh, they're, They're saying, hey, this isn't lawful. Why are they saying it's not lawful? Because if you take a head of grain and you rub it between your fingers or your hands to get the grains out, you are threshing, you are reaping, therefore you are doing work. It's an implication that they are drawing from the command of work. They're saying that's work, work's not allowed, you're doing what's unlawful. That's what they're saying. And they hold a whole bunch of rules like this. So that's what the Pharisees are referring back to. Now, 
let's ask ourselves a question before we go any farther. Are the Pharisees right? And you might say, well, of course they're not right because Jesus goes on to correct them. Well, okay, fair enough. But can we, even from the scriptures themselves, deduce whether the Pharisees are actually right in their assertion? And I believe we can. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. Now, Jesus doesn't answer them this way, and there's a reason not. But let's see and just answer that question to start with. Are they right? Is this unlawful? Is this work? That they're doing on the Sabbath. And what's interesting is, if you look at Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 through 25, uh, it sounds very similar. In fact, it addresses to an extent what Jesus and his disciples are doing. Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 through 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Have you ever wondered in reading the story in Matthew 12, it's like, hey, wait a minute. What gives the disciples the right to go into their neighbor's field and start plucking heads of grain? That doesn't seem like a great idea. That seems like theft. <laughs> uh, that seems like theft. If I go into one of the vineyard or the orchards here and I just start picking, picking apples and picking pears, it's like, ah, that's, that's called theft, actually. Um, well, in the law, as a category, it's not. It says if you're snacky, if you're hungry, you can pick your, uh, your neighbor's vineyard, you can pick your neighbor's standing grain to your fill. It, up until the point where you start actually putting stuff into your bucket or start taking out your sickle and harvesting. In other words, the threshold, th this text gives the threshold of work, doesn't it? The threshold of work is when you start putting your grapes in your bucket or you take out a sickle and start harvesting. That's the threshold of work. Now, obviously, he's just talking about theft here, but... If you understand that principle, then we can answer the Pharisees' question, can't we? Are Jesus and his disciples violating the Sabbath? No, because they're just hungry and satisfying a hunger need. What they are doing, according to the law, is not considered work. It hasn't broken that threshold. And so even before we launch into Jesus' explanation, it's important to understand that backdrop that technically Jesus and his disciples are totally within the bounds of the law. That is important to understand. But you will notice Jesus does not answer them at that level. He could, right? He could say, well, look, remember Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25? Uh, and he could do just exactly what we just did, but he doesn't. Why? Because he wants to point out to them more that's at stake. Or another way to phrase it, Jesus isn't going to play the Pharisees' game. He's not going to play the game of who can interpret the scriptures better He's going to draw them into seeing who he is, who he is. Look at verse 3. He said to them, have you not read, which is kind of insulting, actually, right? It's kind of like saying, hey, you guys are the experts of the law, and haven't you caught this before? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God 
aka the tabernacle, and ate the bread of the presence, which was, it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, what's he talking about? Well, if you've been doing the reading plan that we gave you at the beginning of the year, you actually read this episode fairly recently in 1 Samuel 21. I told you we were going to be doing a lot of Old Testament work this morning. So 1 Samuel 21. Let's, let's, Jesus is referring back to this episode. We better go back there and see what's going on. Now, at this point in Samuel, Saul has been rejected as king, and David in 1 Samuel 16 has been anointed as the true and rightful king. And David has been gaining a reputation for himself. He's Saul's servant. He's serving under Saul, but everyone kind of knows, hey, David's the next guy. David's the next guy. And uh, by the end of chapter 20, Saul gets jealous, and he says, um, we're going to kill David, And finally, Jonathan realizes this, and Jonathan sends him out and says, all right, run, David, get away. So David starts running at the end of chapter 20, and we pick up in chapter 21, verse 1, with the episode that Jesus is referring to. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. This is where the tabernacle is at this time. And Ahimelech came to to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? See, Ahimelech, uh, David normally goes out with a group of men, with a group of fighting men. He's like, where are they? Why are you by yourself? And notice what happens. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So he's saying, yeah, I'm going to meet up with my fighting guys in in another place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before, from before the Yahweh to be replaced by hot bread on the day and is taken away. Now, uh, what's this deal with the bread of the presence? Well, go to Leviticus 24. <laughs> this is sword drill time, right? But actually all of this, Jesus is assuming, when he, he assumes the backdrop of all of this, when he's talking about it. So Leviticus... 24 kind of explains uh, the stipulation of the bread. So Leviticus 24, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be on each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before Yahweh. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, uh, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day... Um, Aaron shall arrange it before Yahweh regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for, for him a most holy portion out of Yahweh's food offerings, a perpetual due. Basically, you remember the tabernacle, you've got the holy place and the, the holy of holies. In the holy place, you have this table 
with these 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you've got the lampstand opposite that. And the lampstand is supposed to represent God's glory shining on his people, on the 12 tribes of Israel. And then those loaves would get refreshed every Sabbath day, which is exactly what's going on in 1 Samuel 21. The bread has just been refreshed. So David is running on the Sabbath day and he's hungry. Sound familiar? So David is hungry and he comes up to the priest. And now here's the thing. David spins Ahimelech a tale, doesn't he? He's lying. Uh, scriptures can accurately record a lie without endorsing a lie. You guys know that? That the scriptures can accurately record something that is a lie that is morally wrong without it being more, without endorsing that behavior. It is not endorsing David's behavior. And you're like, well, why is Jesus referring to it then? Well, because he's, Jesus is identifying with the reader's perspective, have you not read? And with Ahimelech's perspective. Ahimelech is a priest. He is charged with interpreting the law. And what does Ahimelech do? Ahimelech doesn't know that he's being deceived. What he hears is, here's the guy who's anointed to be the next king of Israel, and he's coming up, and he's on the business of the king. He's pursuing the kingdom, and this wouldn't normally be true. Only this bread is for the priest, but evidently he's hard-pressed. He's the anointed king. He's a good man. He's serving the king, uh, and he's the next king, and he's hard-pressed. He needs something right away. Well, I don't have any regular bread, so... This is an emergency situation, so Ahimelech judged that it was lawful in this circumstance to give David and the fighting men bread. And the reader, and the question is for the reader, and the question that Jesus is raising, is Ahimelech right? Yes. Though he's being deceived, he doesn't know he's being deceived, Ahimelech made the right call. That David, as the rightful anointed king, pursuing the king's business in a dire strait and being hungry, it was lawful to give what was normally not lawful on the Sabbath. And so Jesus' argument, if we now get, we'll go back to Matthew 12, he's asking this question, didn't you read about this? And essentially, it's like, you guys don't fault Ahimelech. You don't fault him for making this judgment of lawfulness and giving this bread on the Sabbath. And essentially, the argument is, well, why would you, why would you uh, indict me and my disciples? Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. That argument only works if Jesus is at least as important of David and more so. And in fact, he is. That's the whole point of the chapters in Matthew that we've been seeing, that Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king. He's the Davidic heir. He's the rightful king, just like David's the rightful king, but more so, and he's pursuing kingdom business, isn't he? He is proclaiming the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in connection with that business, his disciples are hungry. His men are hungry. And so even if they had broken the Sabbath, and Jesus is not acknowledging that he did, even if they had broken the Sabbath, what they had done was lawful. He's not saying they did break the Sabbath, but he's saying, well, even if that were the case, it's lawful because I am the ultimate king. He is assuming that. That's the only way this, his argument works. 
But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to another argument. Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, when he says the law there, he's talking about the Torah, the Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And so he's specifically referring to something in those books. He's, he doesn't tell us exactly where, but probably the best bet is Numbers 28. Numbers 28. Numbers 28, uh, if your bulletin says Numbers 12, that's my fault. It's Numbers 28. Numbers 28, 9, and 10. Uh, beginning of Numbers 28 is talking about the priests and the daily offerings they're supposed to do. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, these are the offerings they're supposed to do, but then we get special instructions for the Sabbath. Now, the priest's work is to do what? Offer sacrifices. That's their work. So you might think, oh, when you get to the Sabbath, they're going to stop sacrificing because that's work. That's their work. Look at verse 9 in Numbers 28. On the Sabbath day... Two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Meaning what? Actually, the priests offer more on the Sabbath, and they continue their work, which is what Jesus is referring to. Technically, technically, if you're looking at this, do the priests do work on the Sabbath? Yeah, this is their normal work, then some. And so technically, they are doing work. And from that perspective, they're profaning the Sabbath. But what's going on here, this is a God-authorized uh, violation of the Sabbath. Why? Because what are the priests doing? The priests are doing work so that Israel can have a relationship and fellowship with God through the temple system. That's the whole point of the temple and the tabernacle. It's the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. It's the beating heart of the nation of Israel, and it's the closest you can get to God this side of heaven. And so that's important. And in fact, the importance of it as a priest and maintaining that for the nation means that you're actually going to continue work on the Sabbath so that Israel as a whole can have that. The priests, and only the priests, can do that. And what does Jesus say? You know, it's okay, we, we acknowledge that, but notice this argument only works if what Jesus says in verse 6 holds true, which is this. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, isn't that interesting? It would kind of make more sense to say uh, uh, someone greater than the temple is here, which is true, but the temple is not just about individuals. It's about this whole system of a people dwelling near with God. The whole system exists because of sin. The whole system exists because a sinful people cannot draw near to a holy God. And so the priests have to offer these sacrifices so that Israel can draw near to God. What is Jesus saying? Not just me, but what I am doing is bigger than the temple, which is an audacious claim. But we think about what Matthew has said. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus 
because what? He will save his people from their sins. Temple sacrifices never finally fully dealt with sin. They just allowed you to get it closer to God's presence. But Jesus' sacrifice as the suffering servant, as he's been called already in the book of Matthew, will deal with sin. And not only that, Matthew 3, when he's being baptized by John the Baptist, uh, John says, you know, hey, no, no, I, 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 you need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. And he said, let's be so now so that we may fulfill all righteousness. And we said back then that what that means is, is that so Jesus can actualize not just taking away sin, but actualizing righteousness for his people so that they can be counted righteous and so that they can live righteous lives. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm the ultimate priest, and I'm doing more than the temple system ever could. He's already made those claims because of who he is. So you begin to see why he's not arguing at the, the, the Pharisees' level. He's saying, you're missing it. You're missing me. You're missing the kingdom, which has been what he's been saying in chapter 11 all this time. And he adds more. He adds more. Look at verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. See, right there, he, he implicitly acknowledges we're all innocent. By the law standard, we're all innocent, like we said before. He just kind of acknowledges that. But what's he quoting? He's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. Now, don't worry, you don't have to turn there. You might be getting tired of flipping around, but that's okay. Um, he's actually quoted Hosea 6.6. 6. This is the second time that Jesus has quoted Hosea 6.6 6 in Matthew. The first time was in Matthew 9, when he's in the house of Levi, and he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees come up and say, hey, uh, why does your, they actually talk to the disciples, hey, why is your teacher eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus gets wind of it, and he says, he says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which in the context of Hosea, in the context of Hosea, Israel is all about external conformity, sacrifice, but it's not coming from a heart of covenant loyalty, chesed. The, that's the Old Testament word which is translated mercy here. In Hosea's day, they're all concerned about external conformity, but they're missing the heart, covenant loyalty. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, if you had understood that, that that's God designed, God doesn't merely want external conformity. He wants the heart. He wants the heart. You would have, if, if you would have understood that, you would have not condemned us. We're guiltless. But notice the reason he gives for all of this, the support that he gives in verse 8. For, so he's indicating, I'm supporting what I just said with this statement, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what's he mean? Well, remember what the Son of Man means. We've seen that multiple times in Matthew. What does it mean to be the Son of Man? It starts in Genesis with Adam, and then it goes through the scriptures. The Son of Man, including, say, Ezekiel, Ezekiel's called the Son of Man, it talks about human frailty, human weakness. Adam should have obeyed. He was the, supposed to be a king and a priest, and yet he failed in his job. And the, so the, the Son of Man terminology kind of has this idea you're identifying with weak humanity 
until you get to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which says that one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heavens and is presented before the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom that all nations, peoples, and languages might serve him. And in Daniel 7, we get the culmination. Yes, the Son of Man identifies, the ultimate Son of Man identifies with a weak and sinful people, but he's the one that's ultimately going to succeed where Adam failed. He's going to be the ultimate king and the ultimate priest, which are exactly the two offices that Jesus highlights in Matthew 12. I'm the ultimate king, and I'm the ultimate priest. So even if we were breaking the Sabbath, we are guiltless, but he doesn't acknowledge they were breaking the Sabbath. They weren't. He's just pointing to who he is. The Son of Man is Lord. He's master over the Sabbath. Now think about that for a minute. If you read the scriptures and think of the Old Testament, and you were to ask the question, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? God. God's the one who institutes the Sabbath. God's the one that controls the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm God. I'm the one who has control over the Sabbath. And this ties in with what we saw last week. What is Jesus coming to do? Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you the true Sabbath, the ultimate Sabbath. The Sabbath started at creation because man was designed to dwell with God in perfect peace and harmony and good and life on day seven. Man rebels, and what is God doing? God is pursuing what he is doing to bring us back in the new heavens and the new earth to an ultimate Edenic rest and Sabbath. How do you get there? Only through Jesus Christ. Only through the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus isn't going to argue at the Pharisees' level. He's actually being kind because he's drawing attention again and offering them and saying, look at who I am. If you guys understood that God just doesn't want, God doesn't merely want external conformity, he wants the heart, then you would be coming to me because my call is repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, and entrust yourself to me who will do what the temple could never do in punishing in dealing with sin and counting you righteous so that you can dwell in God's presence, not only now, but in the ultimate sense, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the ultimate Sabbath in the future. A lot going on in that passage. So how do we apply it? First, we need to make this mention. As Christians, we do not keep the Sabbath in the formal sense. In other words, we don't just take off Saturday. Why not? Because the Sabbath was the sign of the Israelite covenant, the old covenant. And we are not under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. And so we don't keep the Sabbath... Uh, the New Testament talks about that in that formal sense because that's not our covenant. We're part of the new covenant. We have a different sign, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take later on this morning. But, but is there a principle in the Sabbath that we should still take? Yeah, what was the Sabbath all about? It was about expressing, I'm going to take a day off where I could be working, where I could be providing my needs, where I could be profiting more to show that I am dependent on the Creator. I am ultimately dependent on the Creator, and I'm resting in Him. So even though we don't keep the Sabbath, there's still a Sabbath principle that we ought to keep. Because if I just work seven days a week, week in and week out, I'm not being dependent. 
I need to depend upon my creator who made me, who made me limited. Only God is unlimited. But even more than that, what do you need to see here? What does Matthew's audience need to see here? You need to see once again Jesus' drastic claims to be the Son of Man, the God-Man, the ultimate King, and the ultimate Priest. If you want true rest and true religion, you come only through him. And we could even say more. Let's answer a question. Does Christ want external conformity? Or another way to ask that, does Christ want obedient behavior? Yes. Yes, he does. Neither he nor his disciples, in their context, violated the Sabbath here. Now, let me ask a follow-up question. Does Jesus want mere external conformity? Never. Never. True religion in God's eyes starts from the heart, from covenant loyalty, and moves outward, not the reverse. You see, what the Pharisees were doing is they're saying, all right, external conformity, but there was no heart behind it. They were disregarding the heart of the law. They were trying to do these external things to show repentance with God's eyes when they were ignoring the one who they needed to come to for heart renovation to begin with. External conformity or behavioral obedience is not legalism in itself. Sometimes in our culture we think, well, if anyone lays out a law or a thing that we need to do, especially in the church, then that's legalism. No, external conformity and behavioral obedience is not legalism in itself. Relying on external conformity or behavioral obedience, like the Pharisees, is. Or promoting yourself through external conformity or behavioral obedience. That's self-righteousness, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. You're going to see it, because their authority is being attacked. They're at the center of their universe, not God. And so that's the problem. Let's put it another way. In our church context, does church attendance, does Christ want church attendance, baptism, the Lord's Supper, identifying with the local church through membership, doing good deeds, etc.? Does he want those things? Yes, does he want mere external conformity to those things? Never. Never. You could come here week in and week out. You could believe all the right things down the line. You could be doing all sorts of great stuff. I don't know your heart. God does. And he wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants your covenant loyalty. Christianity is not about behavior modification to be a nice person. We're not about being nice people in the sense that that's what we're aiming at. I'm not aiming at being a nice person. I'm aiming at following Jesus Christ and loving him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means and implies that, yes, I will be changed externally. It starts with the internal and moves to the external. Christianity is about knowing Christ as the Lord of the Sabbath who will change your whole life, including your behavior. So, we've seen first, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath and law. Next, we need to see this. God's Sabbath and law preserves life, not destroy it. God's Sabbath and law preserve life, not destroy it. Look at verse 9. 
He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Who's the there? It's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So now they're the ones bringing up the question. The Pharisees are bringing up the question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, in their code that they had come up with, unless it was a life-threatening emergency, no, you couldn't do anything to help someone on the Sabbath, even medically, unless it was a life-threatening emergency. And so this guy doesn't have a life-threatening emergency. He's had a shriveled hand. Evidently, he's had it for some time. But um, it's, it, it, and they're, they're bringing this up. They're asking him a question. Is it lawful? They're challenging his interpretation. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And notice, it's not a genuine question. It's so that they might accuse him. This is the idea of bringing Jesus up on charges. They're the ones basically in control of the synagogue. They're respected interpreters of the law. So if they conflict with, his inter- uh, with their interpretation, they're going to bring him up on charges. That's what they're going to do. So it's a di- they're already attacking him. Why? Because he's threatening their authority. Verse 11. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So what's the situation? You get an animal, a sheep, and it falls into a pit. Now that's probably life-threatening for the animal. That's more into the realm of life-threatening situation for the animal. Uh, And evidently, uh, they would have allowed for that. That's his argument. Uh, Of course you're going to do that. Uh, An animal gets into a pit. It's a life-threatening scenario. Uh, You're going to rescue it. You're going to preserve life. You're going to preserve the life of the sheep. Verse 12 Therefore, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Now, what's his argument? Uh, The man with a shriveled hand doesn't have a life-threatening situation, so that's different. But what Jesus is saying is the value of a man is so much more than an animal that if you're willing to preserve life with a sheep, why aren't you willing to promote life with a guy with a shriveled hand? And so what does he say? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's the idea, it's, 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 it's lawful to do rightly on the Sabbath. The, the law of God is designed to promote life. Um, towards the end of Deuteronomy, it says to the people of Israel, choose life. And what does it mean? Obey these things because they will promote life. Now you're like, wait a minute, Paul says the law condemns us. Yes, it does as sinners. But for those who have repented and entrusted themselves to Jesus, now we have the ability to obey God's law because we love, we love from the internal to the external, and God's law promotes life. It preserves life. And so Jesus is saying it's, it's totally in accord with God's law to do good, to do right, to promote life on the Sabbath. And then he backs up his words with action, verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Jesus promoted life. It's lawful. I'm going to give this, 
yes, this man, it's, it's obviously he's living, but he's, he's, uh, his life has been hindered by this debility, and so Jesus heals him in an act of compassion and grace. He promotes life. But notice what the Pharisees do, and this is a plot turning point in Matthew. But the Pharisees went out, left the synagogue, and conspired against him. They took counsel, is the idea. They took counsel against him so that they might destroy him. This is ironic, isn't it? Jesus just gave a man back a portion of life. He's promoting life. These folks are going out on the Sabbath because he did that, because he promoted life on the Sabbath, they're going out and conspiring to murder on the Sabbath. It's total irony. Who's the breaker of the Sabbath now? The Pharisees or Jesus? Obviously the Pharisees, but it's internal. It's internal. And that's the problem. You see, What's the issue at stake? It's authority. It's an authority battle between Jesus and the Pharisees. Who gets to control the interpretation of the law? Jesus or the Pharisees? Well, obviously Jesus does, but because their authority has been attacked, they are willing to destroy Jesus. And that's the issue. If God is not your treasure, if he is not... If Christ is not the treasure of your soul, then you can take God's law, which is good, and start twisting it to promote yourself and preserve your own authority because you are at the center of your own universe. That is the God of this culture, expressive individualism. I am my ruler, and you will affirm me. That is the God of our culture. And so if you are at the center of your own universe, We've said this before, you will twist even God's word and God's law for your own, to preserve your own authority. Just another form of expressive individualism. You will end up twisting the letter of the law, just like the Pharisees, to attack the heart of the law and will oppose God. This is the danger of traditions and an unwillingness to always measure our traditions by the Scriptures and the heart of the Scriptures. The, the Pharisees had a tradition. They had an oral tradition. This is the way you interpret the law. And they got locked into that and became enamored of their own authority. And then they twisted the letter of the law against the heart of the law. We can fall into the same trap. We must always measure everything everything by the scriptures. That's what we mean by sola scriptura. The scriptures and the scriptures alone are our final authority. Traditions aren't inherently bad, but they always have to be measured. What we do has to always be measured by the scriptures. Here's the amazing reality. We can even use scriptural sounding ideas and language to cloak sinful desires and actions. If you don't believe me, I'll show you, uh, just look at the LGBTQ movement. Well, if you love me, if God loves me for who I am, then he must affirm me in being homosexual, bisexual, lesbian, gay, transgender, because that's who I am. I've decided who, that's who I am, because I'm the ruler, 
And God loves me. God loves me just as I am. Therefore, you're being anti-scriptural by not affirming me. You see how you can start twisting scriptural ideas to affirm your own pet sins. And it doesn't have to be just that. It could be any pet sin. So the question is this for us. Any of us can fall into that trap. We're not immune from this. I'm not immune from this. So how do we guard ourselves? We combat this by truly seeking Christ and God, not ourselves as our greatest good. Christ must be at the center of your universe. God must be at the center of your universe. Covenant loyalty to God must be at the center of your universe. And you are willing to follow him and his word wherever it leads you. And then it's not about you. It's about Christ. And it's about faithfulness to Christ. When he is your love, he is your joy, he is your satisfaction, you're going to follow Christ, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, in all that you do and believe. So obey the Sabbath and God's law from the heart, following the Son of Man. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you. We love that you've given us your word. We love that it's true. We love that it's infallible. We love that it's inerrant in the original documents and that you preserved those originals for us to, to examine, to understand, to weigh interpretations. Lord, guard us. We can slip into having ourselves, our traditions, the way it's always been at the center of our life, and then harming others because it threatens our authority. Lord, guard us from that. You are our authority. You are the ultimate judge. You are the ultimate king. You are the son of man. You are the one to give true religion, true rest, and we trust you, and we love you. We thank you for this this ordinance that we're about to partake in, the Lord's Supper. Lord, we could, we could take this in a mere external way. We do not want to do that because you don't want mere external conformity. You want from the heart. So prepare our hearts even now as we prepare to take the sign of our covenant, the cup representing your blood spilled, your, the bread symbolizing your body broken and symbolizing the one body that you've made us as a local church. Lord, please bless this time. Lord, help us to proclaim you to the world that believes only in the triumph of the self. Lord, you are the king, and you and you alone. And we swear fealty and obedience to you by your grace, because only if you, Father, not only if you, Father, revealed the Son to us can we come to the Son. We thank you that you've done that. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for doing what the temple system ultimately could not do by dealing with our sin and by giving us, accounting to us your own righteousness and then transforming us to righteous action and to obedience from the heart. We love you and we praise you. Bless this time now as we take your supper. In Christ's name, amen.